Well, please turn with me, if you will, to Exodus chapter 20. And as I mentioned earlier, we are in the midst of a series of sermons through the Ten Commandments. And we've been calling this series The Good Life. You'll probably notice that in the titles of all of the sermons we've had over the past few weeks, that they've all begun with that title, The Good Life. Because we believe, and when we look at Scripture, that a good life is a life that glorifies God, that expresses love to God, and that also expresses love to our neighbor. And we find that when that is characteristic of our life, that our lives are enjoyable as well. It's a good life on multiple fronts, a life that glorifies God and enjoys Him forever. And God gives us the shape of what a life like that looks like in so many ways by giving us the Ten Commandments. And this morning we come upon the Seventh Commandment, and that's what we're going to explore together today. So let's take a moment now to read God's Word. We'll begin reading in verses 1 and 2 of Exodus 20, being remind, reminding ourselves of the fact that God gives us this law in the context of having already received His grace. So let's have that in view now as we read God's Word in Exodus chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And now skip down to verse 14, which is where we find the seventh commandment. It says this, You shall not commit adultery. Amen. This is God's word to us this morning. Well, more than likely, you have never heard of the name Noel Bitterman. Noel Bitterman is a man who seems to be enjoying quite a windfall during these tough economic times. He's an entrepreneur. He lives in Toronto. He's a devoted husband and a father of two children. But before, uh, back in about 2002, one of his jobs was serving as an agent to several prominent NBA basketball players. And he found that much of what he was doing in his job as, an, as a sports agent was protecting players from having extramarital affairs on their wives. That's what he was spending a, a great deal of time doing. So that's what he was discovering about his own job, and then he was also discovering at the same time that a lot of online dating sites were starting to crop up. Things like eHarmony and Match.com and things of that nature. And so he got this great idea to establish a new company, which he called Ashley Madison. And he named his company after the two most prominent girl baby names that year. And the motto of the company is this. Life is short, have an affair. That's quite a motto for a company. Mr. Bitterman operates off of the assumption that monogamy is a failed experiment. And so he's developed this company for what he calls aspiring adulterers to meet one another for a discreet encounter. And he promises everybody who signs up for this online site that they have a 100% affair guarantee. Have you ever heard of a guarantee quite like that? That's what you get if you sign up for this particular company. And unless you think that this is some kind of fringe deal here, you should know that his company has 9.2 million users in 10 different countries with plans to expand to, expand to three more this year and a revenue in 2010 of $60 million. The affair business apparently is a multi-million dollar deal. And it should be no surprise because a lot of the experts tell us that 
at least one partner will have an affair at some point in 80% of marriages. That's 80% of marriages. At least one partner will commit adultery. And that being the case, it kind of makes us wonder if that whole till death do us part thing really matters much anymore. If that's something that really applies, and if Mr. Bitterman is actually right when he says that monogamy is a failed experiment, because the evidence certainly points to the fact that he may have a point there. But the fact is for Christians is that we cannot be satisfied with that. And we can't be satisfied with that because we cannot take our bearings from our own urges and our own cultural trends. As Christians, we are people who build our lives on God and on his word and what he reveals to us and his authority there. And when we build our lives on God and upon his word, we start to discover that how we view certain things like sex and marriage and commitment and relationship, things of that nature are going to take on a much different shape than that of the world around us. And so what I want to do this week and next week is explore this seventh commandment. It's piercing. It speaks to some very intimate parts of our lives. But I think it's important that we do so because there are a few things in our lives more important and more rising to the surface than the issues of marriage and sex. And so I think that we need to talk frankly and candidly about these things because in so many respects, the Bible is actually a book about marriage. And it's a book about sex. In fact, you don't have to get very far in the Bible to see the very first marriage. It's a marriage between Adam and Eve. And the very first thing that God calls Adam and Eve to do, the very first thing that he commands them to do is to have sex with each other. Have you ever thought about that? The very first commandment that Adam and Eve ever have is to be fruitful and multiply. Last I checked, there was only one way to do that. That's what he commands to them. And so that tells you, at the very least, that sex within marriage must be a very, very good thing. It's something that God has created. It's something that God has created before the fall. He created it very good when Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed. And he created it for their good and he created it to flourish the world, to be fruitful and multiply. But then as you get a little bit farther down into the Bible, you get to this really strange book called the Song of Solomon. The Song of Solomon was so racy that Hebrew rabbis very often would not let young Hebrew men read the book at all until they were 30 years old. And to just give you some idea of what's in there, and I could almost flip indiscriminately in the Song of Solomon, but I can show you this, what, a, what this wife says about her husband. It's poetic language, it's very flowery language, but just deal with it for the, for the time being. Psalm, uh, Song of Solomon, chapter 6, beginning in verse 13, this is what the wife says about her husband. His cheeks are like beds of spices, mounds of sweet-smelling herbs, His lips are lilies, dripping liquid myrrh. His arms are rod of gold, set with jewels. His body is polished ivory, bedecked with sapphires. His legs are alabaster columns, set on bases of gold. His appearance is like Lebanon, choice as the cedars. His mouth is most sweet, and he is altogether desirable. This is my beloved, and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. So that's what you get from the wife to her husband. Now, how about the husband to his wife? 
When you look in chapter 7, verse 1, this is what he says. Some of you are sitting here like this right now. I can even see it. But this is what he says. How beautiful are your feet in sandals, O noble daughter. Your rounded thighs are like jewels, the work of a master hand. Your navel is a rounded bowl that never lacks mixed wine. Your belly is a heap of wheat encircled with lilies. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. Your neck is like an ivory tower. And he goes on and on and on about this. And my friends, that's in the Bible. That's in the Bible. Some of the metaphors are a little strange. I don't know about saying to your wife that your belly is like a heap of wheat. I guess that's supposed to be a compliment. Uh, I don't know that I would recommend you saying that to your wife, but of course back then the context must have been a little bit different. But the point is, is that this is beautiful, poetic, flowery, erotic, sexual language that is beautiful and takes place in the context of the marriage relationship between one man and one woman. And it's good. It's a very, very good thing. It shows you that sex is not just for procreation, it's also for pleasure and for intimacy, and it's designed to happen with the, the relationship of a husband and a wife. And then when you get into the New Testament, what does that have to say? You get to see what Paul has to say in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And beginning in verse 3, this is what he says. He says, The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again. This is what Paul is saying in a nutshell. He's saying that a husband and wife ought to have a regular, generous sexual life together. In fact, the only thing that ought to ever really interrupt the regularity and the generosity of that sexual life together should be prayer. Now, I'm not the most seasoned minister in the world, but I've talked to some couples about this, and I have never once, to this point in my ministry, had a couple come to me and say that the reason why they were not having a regular sexual life together was because they were devoting time to prayer. I don't think I would even believe it if someone came to me and said that. I would think they were full of beans. That's not the reason why it's not happening. And that's the only reason that Paul really gives. It's the reason why you should abstain for a time. He, he's saying here that in marriage that your bodies and your souls belong to each other. The husband belongs to his wife and the wife belongs to her husband. And there are certain rights that are involved in that marriage relationship. And so he's saying that selfishness in that area of your life is something that not only fails to glorify God, and not only fails to love your spouse, but it just robs your whole marriage of joy. So here's the point of all those passages that I just read. The point is that sex is a very, very good thing. God created it. He created it good. And if you ever hear a people saying the Bible has this real negative view of sex and that it's real inhibited and negative and dirty and puritanical, then it means that they don't have a clue what they're talking about. They don't know anything about the Bible and they don't know anything about the Puritans because the Puritans' view of sex was not that. There's a very robust, beautiful view of what it is. It's absolutely positive. But, but, here's the thing about it. 
He's saying that the seventh commandment here shows us the goodness and the beauty of sex, but that it has to happen within the right context, within the context that God has designed for it to happen. And that context is this and this only, the covenant marital commitment between one man and one woman. In marriage, alone. That's the only place where where it belongs. Sex is a good and powerful and beautiful thing. But it's something that ought to be treated carefully and it ought to be protected because if we live carelessly in that area of our lives, we'll find that our lives end up getting screwed up in every manifestation. A number of years ago, someone wrote a letter to Dear Abby. This is what she wrote. She says, I'm a 23-year-old liberated woman who has been on the pill for two years. It's getting expensive, and I think my boyfriend should share half the cost. But I don't know him well enough yet to discuss money with him. Are you serious? But friends, that is the way in which the world works. In fact, that's normal. What, What we're talking about here is not normal. That is what's normal in the world in which we live today, where sexual intimacy precedes financial intimacy, relational intimacy, covenantal, marital commitment. That's what's normal, and it makes sex cheap. It's not the way that he created it. We're not designed to be like rabbits who just sexually engaged with whoever catches our eye at any given time. We're people created by God and for God, and in His image, and for His glory, and to live within the context of what He's designed us to live. And when we sexually, or in any other way, live outside of that design, we not only fail to glorify Him, but we end up screwing up our lives. And we end up causing deep hurts in the lives of our neighbors, and the lives of the people that we love. See, God has, has placed boundaries around sex, not because it's bad, but because it's so good. You know, if, if you own a 1985 Buick Skylark with a huge dent in the door and a missing hubcap, you're probably not going to care who, that much about who drives the car and if it comes back with another missing hubcap and another dent in the door. But if you just dropped a half million bucks on a Rolls Royce, you're probably not going to let anybody drive it except for maybe your spouse only if you are in the passenger seat dictating every detail of where that car is going and you're going to make sure that it is parked in parking lot no man's land so no one will ever dent the car or cause any damage to it whatsoever. You do that because the, the value of one car is so much greater than the value of the other. You protect one with such a greater degree. And what God is saying here in the Seventh Commandment is that sex and marriage are just like that. They're so beautiful, they're so good, that they're designed to be protected. And what he's saying is that the, the, context, the context in which sex and sexual pleasure is to be enjoyed is within that covenant bond of marriage between one man and one woman. And you discover, when you read the Bible, that you discover that anything other than that, any kind of sexual activity that happens outside of that context is always a mess. Always a mess. I mean, Solomon had so many sexual partners that it would make Hugh Hefner squirm. And yet he 
ended his life as one of the most miserable, empty people around. You discover that polygamy in the Bible, where men would take more than one wife, was one of the most oppressive institutions around. And it caused a whole host of problems. And no matter what that show the sister wives may want you to believe about it, it's a colossal disaster. Homosexuality. This is something we'll explore more next week when we get into Matthew chapter 5. See what Jesus has to say about it. But homosexuality, acting out upon that, living within that lifestyle, what Paul says about it in Romans chapter 1 is that it is very often a picture of the fact that a person's heart is so hardened and so cold and so dead to God that under no circumstances will they ever repent. Any kind of sexual activity outside of that bond of marriage is always a disaster. Here's an interesting tidbit for you. The people in first century Corinth were massive idolaters. This was the Sodom and Gomorrah equivalent of the first century. And they worshipped a multitude of gods. And they worshipped this one god called Asclepius, who was the god of healing. So if there was some kind of injury or disease that a person had, they would oftentimes make a cast or a mold of that, type, that part of the body, and they would go into the temple and they would offer it up to that god for healing. Well, archaeologists have dug around Corinth, and they have discovered gobs and gobs and gobs of casts of private parts that were offered up to that god. The sexually transmitted diseases taking place in a city that was so sexually liberal and licentious caused them to have to cry out to their non-existent gods for mercy. It is never blessed when it happens outside of the context of marriage because you self-destruct in body and in soul. You know, within marriage... Adultery, having sex with someone with whom you are not married, is an extreme form of betrayal. I can't think of a more extreme form of betrayal than adultery because what sex does is it bonds our bodies and our souls. You know, in in Genesis, again, when you look back to Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, you discover that it says that Adam knew his wife Eve and she conceived and bore Cain. Well, that does not mean, obviously, that Adam just knew a lot of scoop about his wife and that they would go out and have a Starbucks and talk about all their deepest longings and that was the extent of their knowing. No, the the knowing actually produced a child. So it was an intimate, personal knowing, not only on the level of the soul, but also on the level of the body. It's It's a deep, deep level of intimacy there. See, my friends, there is no such thing as no strings attached sex. There's always strings attached because it changes you. You are knowing and being known in ways that transcend any other kind of relationship. And you know what the ironic thing about it is? The person who will sexually attach to almost anyone is someone who will be unable to attach in every other way to almost anyone. If, you, if, you'll attach, if you'll attach yourself sexually to everyone, you won't be able to attach to anyone. And within marriage, the sexual bond that you make with someone to whom you are not married 
will prevent you from being able to bond to the one to whom you are married. You know, adultery, and we'll see this more next week, any kind of sex that happens outside of that context of marriage, what it does eventually is it leaves you hard and cold and quite frankly messed up. Sex is the adhesive on the tape that bonds you. But when you bond and rip and bond and rip and bond and rip, pretty soon there's not enough adhesive on the tape to bond you anymore. You don't stick to anything. You can't attach anymore. See, God so highly values sex and marriage that He wants that bond to take place within the security and within the protective boundaries and within the commitment that marriage brings. And when you sexually express yourself outside of that context, you are betraying the one to whom you are married or you are betraying the one that you may be married to someday. It's a huge act of betrayal, but it's also a huge lie. Adultery, sexual immorality like that, is a huge lie. Because what you're saying to the person with whom you are having sex is that I want your body, but I don't want your soul. I want your body, but I don't want your problems. I don't want your needs. I don't want your flaws. I don't want your struggles. I'll I'll deal with them for a time. I'll make you believe that. But ultimately, I'm here to get what I want. I'm not making any lasting promises to you. I want you to be totally vulnerable to me, and I want to be totally vulnerable to you. But at the end of the day, I want to hold on to my life, and I want to do what I want, and I want to be free from any permanent responsibility to you. Friends, that's a non-sequitur. It's a lie. Because sex bonds two people in body and soul. Everybody who has bounced around from one partner to another, who has has been in that kind of life, knows, whether they want to admit it or not, that the bond is not just a physical bond. There are unspoken promises that get made within that sexual union. And that is why, and you can even see it in the movies and hear it in songs and see it in people's lives, that when that relationship breaks up, that's why there is such deep, intense heartbreak because you become literally one flesh with another human being who you have been ripped apart from. You know, I've counseled young women, college students, young women who said that after their boyfriend dumped them, after having had that sexual relationship, they said that they felt cheap. And it's no wonder because the sex was cheap. They could get it with no commitment, no responsibility, whatsoever, even though that's exactly what the sexual relationship promised. They feel cheap because they were lied to. And I've counseled spouses along the same lines who've been cheated on, and they said that they felt cheap. And the reason why they say that they felt cheap is because they were treated like the Buick Skylark instead of like the Rolls Royce. They were treated as something to be tossed aside once something more appealing came along. A vow was made and it was broken. And they feel cheap because they were lied to. Adultery is such a huge lie, my friends, and a huge act of betrayal that it is the only grounds that Jesus gives for divorce. See, marriage is permanent when you look at the Scriptures. It's till death do us part. It's a covenantal bond that lasts until one person or the other person dies. 
That's what it's designed to be. But there's an exception that Jesus makes to that, and the exception is when one spouse commits adultery against the other spouse. And the reason why is because when that person has left and sexually united themselves to another person, they have left the covenant bond of that marriage and they have begun a new one with that other person. The, the, the covenant has been, has, has been broken. Adultery breaks that covenant. That's why Jesus gives it as a reason, as an, as an exception to the permanence of marriage. Well, that's the most obvious form of divorce, and that's what I wanted to zero in on. And perhaps many of you, um, praise God, are safe on that. You have not had that kind of thing crop up in your life, at least to this point, by the grace of God. And I would challenge you to continue to trust in the grace of God and in the power of the Holy Spirit to keep you pure from that, to keep you away from that. But the fact of the matter is, and we're going to discover this next week when we look at Matthew chapter 5, Jesus explains that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in in his heart. And friends, to one degree or another, that covers all of us. And it covers issues like pornography and immodesty and homosexuality and depriving of your spouse and any kind of sexual relationship outside of that marital bond. And that's what we're going to discover a little bit more next week. But before we go this morning, in just a few minutes, I just want to give you a few practical hooks that you can latch yourself onto, a few things that you can take away in light of this commandment. And the first thing that I want to say is that if you are someone who is in the midst of having an affair, committing adultery right now, the obvious practical application for you is that you have to immediately cut that relationship off. You have to cut it off. What Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5 is that if your hand causes you to sin, then you have to cut it off. And if your eye causes you to sin, you need to pluck it out. And obviously that's not to be taken literally because no one would have any hands or eyes. We would all all be amputees. But the point is is that we have to remove ourselves from this or any other thing in our life that is causing us to to imbibe a, a, a life of such deep, dark sin. This is something that you cannot mess with. You can't mess with this, my friends. It's a deadly, serious issue. You can't just be friends with that person. It means no emails, no text messages, no phone calls, none of that stuff. You have to realize what it is. You have to call it sin and stop the lie and stop the betrayal. And the fact of the matter is this. You are probably not going to be able to do that alone. In fact, you are probably foolish to think that you would be able to do that alone. You need accountability in this area. It's something that you need to bring, whether it's this sin or any other thing that you're really battling with and struggling with and, and, and not really growing through. It's something that you need to bring to a trusted Christian friend or, or, or bring it to even the elders. I can promise you this, that if, if you are someone who's in the midst of an affair and you want to break it off, and you want to cut off any other area of of sin in your life for that matter, I can promise you that the elders are not going to kick you out of the church for it. We're not going to shoot our wounded. We're not going to make a public spectacle out of you. We're, We're here to help. The church is a place to be healed, not a place to be destroyed. And the reason why is because Jesus never, ever, ever casts out repentant people of even the most heinous 
sins. That's what we saw when we just read Psalm 51 a little while ago, that God forgave David not only of his adultery, and not only of his lie, but also of his murder. David was repentant, and and he came to a God, and he found God to be gracious and compassionate and slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. That's the kind of God that you have, Christian. That's the kind of God that you have. So whatever it is that you're battling with, take it to him and rest in him for grace and forgiveness and the power to repent and realize that you cannot do that on your own. You're going to need accountability and you're going to need help in that area. So make use of the church. Make use of one another. And another group of people I want to speak to is this. It's people who may be strongly tempted in this area. You know, maybe there's, there's someone in your life with whom you have crossed certain boundaries and you are right on the very edge of doing something that is going to mess up your life and it's going to mess up your family. There's a similar thing you need to do. You need to, you need to end that relationship and you need to remove yourself from the situation that might prey on your weakness. But you can't, with this or any other sin in your life, straddle the fence. Have you ever tried to straddle a fence before? It's, it's not something you can do for very long. It hurts. It's, it's painful. It's uncomfortable. You're going to land on one side of the fence or the other. And that's what you need to, to do. You need to realize that, to, to give that up and to land on the side of the fence of God's grace and God's power to help you to repent. And you also might well consider what would happen if you were to go through with that. If you were to go through with that affair, Noel Bitterman might be trying to sell you a bill of goods that says life is short, have an affair, as if it's something relatively harmless. But I think that that is hopelessly naive. It has huge effects. So make a list. Make a list of the things that you would lose, the things that you would give up, the pain that it would cause if you were to go through with that. Do not commit adultery is given to us not only because adultery is an expression of the fact that we either do not know God as we ought or that we do not know Him at all. And it's not only given to us because it's something that brings immense pain that could potentially last for generations to our spouse and children and friends and church, but it's also something that will most definitely screw up your life. And if you don't believe me, make a list of the things that you would lose if you were to go through with that. Here's here's just the last group that I want to speak to. Many of you are in awful marriages right now. They're less than ideal. The the love that originally attracted you to one another is gone. There's almost or completely no sexual relationship in that marriage and your hearts have grown cold toward one another. I I think it's important to realize that your marriage is probably quite ripe for an affair. You know, if you you read on the front of your bulletin this morning, you'll see a quote by Ben Franklin. Not a guy who gets quoted very often around here, but this is what he says. Where there is marriage without love... There will be love without marriage. In other words, a loveless marriage 
is one that's ripe for some kind of love to crop in with someone to whom you are not married. It's ripe for an affair. You're, you're designed to bond and love with one another. And if that is not happening in your marriage, then it's very likely that one or both of you at some point will go looking for love in all the wrong places, as they say. But even if that never happens, your marriage is unhealthy. And it's falling way short of what it could be. And I can't offer a lot of counsel to you and a lot of help in 90 seconds. But the, the key is to seek out help for this. Don't, don't go on and, and just pretend that things are okay when they're not. You know, seek out the help of one another. Seek out the church. Seek out the elders. Don't just assume that your relationship is normal. Who cares if it's normal? We're not shooting for normal around here. We're shooting for something of the beauty of what God has designed marriage to be. And your marriage needs help. And if it needs help, seek it out. You know, I, I used to think that I was a pretty run-of-the-mill sinner until I got married. And then, after about a month, I realized I was a lot more messed up than I ever thought that I was. That's because marriage brings that ugliness out. It brings it out in you, and it brings it out in your spouse. And I promise you that you are not going to cure the emptiness and the brokenness and the depravity by seeking it outside of your marriage. You're going to break up a marriage, you're going to break up a family that will have implications possibly for generations to come and your own issues are going to go on unchecked and unredeemed. Listen to this, just in closing. Ephesians 5.25 Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. You know, internalizing that changes things. Because when you see that you are the bride and Christ is the groom, you see that He came and He, and he intimately bound Himself towards you. He, he created intimacy with you where He promised commitment to you in the midst of your problems and in the midst of your failures and in the midst of your needs. And even though we fail Him, and fail our spouse, He promises that He will never, ever, ever, ever commit adultery against His people, against His bride, against His church. Friends, the key to an affair-proof marriage is to know the affair-proof God. Take that with you now as we get ready to pray. Let's bow our hearts before Him. Well, Father, this is, a, this is a challenging word, no doubt. There are people here this morning who are broken inside because they've gone down that path of darkness. And my prayer for them is that they would know that You are a gracious and compassionate God who plunges sin into the depths of the sea. And You don't hold our past over us as leverage. We know that, but we so often don't believe it. So my prayer is that we would believe it. And my prayer is that you would also help us to see that you have not given us any temptation which we, with the Holy Spirit in our lives, are unable to bear. So we pray that you would work out your power within us and 
work out Your power within this church so that this would be a place and that we would be a people who honor sex and marriage in the way that it was designed to be honored and so that we would enjoy it in the way in which it is designed to be enjoyed. We pray that You would heal our brokenness, make us repentant and draw us to the cross. We pray this all in the name of Him who came such a distance for us, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.